episode 17 with Jason Petty. Just got off the road with Jason uh, doing a Western Canada tour, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, Jason's a fabulous singer, great storyteller. He, he's been working the role as Hank Williams Sr. for quite a long time. He's got lots of great history on Hank and uh, the whole country music industry, and I think you'd really enjoy this conversation. So sit back, relax, let's get it rolling. <laughs> Okay, we're rolling. Right on. Hey, Jason Petty. What's happening, Darren Walters? It's nice that uh, you took some time to come on the podcast. We're on tour in Western Canada and doing the Lonesome Tour, uh, tribute to Hank Williams. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. It has. It is a Lonesome Tour. It's me and you in the car. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Brian's gone now, so it's just the, the two of us. And uh, it's actually kind of neat. It's... It's different, a different tour with just a doing a solo thing. Um, obviously, you do a lot of different shows, but this one is a, a solo tour, and uh, yeah, it's it's different. You just hop in the vehicle and away you go. Set up as quick, right? And you know, quick. I've been doing this for like twenty two years, and I've been very hesitant to ever do it as a solo project. Even though Hank Williams, the singer songwriter. His music uh, really lends itself more to just a man and his guitar yeah. because that's really what Hank was in essence. You know, all, everything stripped away, all the talk of legend and alcohol and all this other kind of stuff. It was just a man and his guitar and his in his brilliance, and that's what we that's what we bring to the stage. And um, I was I was very hesitant to do it, and then in 2016. The National World War II Museum in New Orleans, Louisiana, called me, and they have a little cabaret theater there. Oh. And they said, "We don't want the band; we just want like a one-man show from people from those from that era, you yeah. know, just post World War II." And that's what Hank was. Nineteen forty-six was his first hit. So I said, "Okay." And I was I was scared to death. Boy, I was more scared than I was standing on stage off Broadway in New York City or at the Ryman. I was scared to death because it was me. Yeah. You know, I couldn't fall back on, eh, hit it, guys. <laughs> you know, if you start messing up, you can turn around and go, hit it, boys. Well, this time I'm the boy. And so I had to hit it. But it, it went over great. It went over great. And it has really gone, it has really taken off because, like I said, his stuff lends lends itself more to the, the one-man show. Yeah, I know when Brian and I decided to do the tour the first time, we did a, a small run last year. We had that conversation a few times because you'd, how do you advertise it um, to make sure people know? And I don't think half the time people coming in, they know it's going to be a, a solo to a uh, solo show. And, you know, you always wonder, well, are people going to complain? You know, that it's just a single guy. Maybe mm -hmm. they're expecting a full band, big production. And not a want, not a peep from anybody. And I think the show just lends itself so well that way. Um, it, no one ever even questions it, and it works really well. So, Well, and that's my grandmother's fault. I have the gift of gab when yeah. I'm on stage in front of people. I know the subject matter so well, and I know because I was told all these stories personally by people like Don Helms, Hank's steel guitar player and yeah. best friend, and he's one of the guys that, you know, you say has never met an enemy. 
Well, he never had. Everybody was friends at Don's funeral. I bet had five thousand people there. I mean, they were they were packed. They were lined up outside. They had to put it on loudspeakers outside the funeral wow. home. Such a great guy, and I knew these stories from all the people I've met over the years. And I started writing the stories down. So, luckily, telling the story behind the legend of Hank Williams and trying to make him a human being with humor, yeah. you know, and, and with personal insight and things like that. I think it gives a lot of weight to the music, even more so than just, you know, the legendary songs themselves. Now you've got a backdrop, you know, of what was going on in his life when he wrote I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry or when he wrote Your Cheating Heart or, you know, those great songs. So it has turned out much better, but I had, you know, you guys had a couple of conversations over probably a two-month period. I had conversations in my own head for 20 years, yeah. you know, before, okay, I'll do it. It was just a very nerve-wracking thing that suddenly, you know, you've you've always leaned on. I came from theater first before I got into music. And you you leaned on your, you know, if you got a great actor across from you, Oh man, you can really turn it on and get it yeah. going and get somebody to bounce it off of. You got a band behind you, man, you can really get into that music thing and and really, you know, you don't have to uh, the lyrics don't need to mean as much if you've got a rock and band. Yeah. But then suddenly, it's you and your guitar and sometimes I forget to turn it on. <laughs> like the other day. That was that was kind of like, oh, I guess we're even now. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> right. I was like, you guys can't hear me, can you? And they went, no. I went, ah, there's a switch back here I can see. That's funny. Well, let's go back, uh, you know, as you say in your show, back to the beginning. And uh, well, Jason Petty, where were, you, uh, where were you born, Jason? I was born in Manchester, Tennessee, the town in which I have moved back to to raise my own family yeah so uh how long did you stay there i was in manchester until i went to college uh i went to college at age 18 and it was in knoxville tennessee at the university of tennessee for four years graduated and went straight to work for pfizer pharmaceuticals worked there for three years so were you uh were you singing at a young age no, no. I mean, you know, I was a when I was a kid, I was a huge Elvis fan. I got to see him in concert, you know, yeah. in like 1974, and and it, and I went nuts. The first record my mother ever bought me was a, a, a record called Elvis Country, so it was Elvis Country singing country music. Yeah, and um, I sang in church choir. Um, I got into the church. I started work in a little town called Franklin, Tennessee, right out of college, and that's where I was based for. Uh, my Pfizer um, job, and I went to the United Methodist Church there and got involved in the choir, and that was my first real chance at singing. And I had entered talent shows before, but yeah. it it was just as a fun thing to do and to meet girls. Yeah. And what about acting? Were you doing any acting before then as well, or is that something you fell into as well? It all started in Franklin, that little that little town. I went to church and got involved in the choir, and then one of my uh, doctors um, in Franklin, well, he was in Nashville, but he lived in Franklin, and he and I were talking. We were having dinner one night, and he said, you know, we've got this little theater uh, in Franklin called Pull Tight Players, and we're doing... Um, once upon a mattress which is what made carol burnett famous you know Mm -hmm. um it's the princess and the pea basically and they said we need somebody who can sing because our minstrel dropped out Uh. and he said would you do it 
and I was like, whoa, wait a minute. I said, I've never been on stage other than a stupid high school talent show, you know? So it, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> you know, it was kind of that decision. Yeah. He was my doctor and I didn't want to, you know, he was buying from me. Yeah. So, you know, he was buying my, my, my pharmaceutical stuff. And I was like, well, sure, I'll do it. And got in there and got involved with those theater people who were so sweet to me. And they, I had a visit from them. I was playing a show in Crossville, Tennessee, and they drove three hours whole group of people from pull type players to come wow. see the show and it was like old home week yeah but uh, that's where i got involved in acting and i guess you could say since it was a musical i got involved in singing so what was that first show like for you you remember doing the first one i remember i had to wear tights <laughs> that's all i remember about that and i was thinking good lord please that's just my whole my whole reason for singing the talent shows was to pick up women and it didn't work in tights <laughs> so, um, you know, that was, um, I say that, I, you know, that wasn't my real reason. My real reason was it was fun. You yeah. know, it was fun. It was, um, it's an escape from the rest of the world, you know, because just being at the job and grinding all day and, you know, getting up at three to be at the hospital by five and, you know, you finish up and you're done at like four in the afternoon and you're, you're ready for bed. Yeah. And that's, that was the life. And I was 23 and 24 years old. And so I did it, did it as an escape. And uh, while I was I was doing local theater there and singing in the church choir, my choir minister, um, his one of his best friends was the one of the um, piano players, the accompanist at Opryland uh, Show Park in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, and he said you need to audition for this guy, and I did, and they signed me to a weekend only contract for a first year, and that was 1990. And so I'm I'm working for Pfizer, I'm doing plays at Pull Tight, and now I'm singing Saturdays and Sundays at the Opryland Show Park in a show called Country Music USA. That's where I was first introduced to Hank Williams. That was a uh, so that was one of their main shows there, right? Yeah, um, it was it was their bread and butter. It yeah. was it was the main one. Yeah, I remember going to Opryland Theme Park years ago. Obviously, it's been closed for a while, uh, but I love that place. It was. If you're into country music, or if you like country music, even if you didn't, it didn't really matter. Um, but if you did, that was that was a great place to go. It was kind of a, it was a theme park, not really many rides, right? Right. Um, but it was based around music. You'd walk around, there'd be all these different shows that you could go to on, you know, how many a day would there be? Well, uh, we like, had, during the summer, there were eight shows of Country Music USA, we had two casts, so oh, yeah. you'd do four shows, and then the other cast would come in, and they'd do four shows. How long they, of shows would they be? Fifty-five minutes. Yeah, no Still show. Long enough for a for a theme park. Uh, this was outdoors. Yeah. Have you ever been to Nashville in the summer? Oh, oh my gosh! And you're out there, and you're in polyester, and you know you're making quick changes, and you're coming out there. And back then, we didn't have wireless mics, so we had a full three days of what we called mic dressing rehearsals so that you didn't get a big giant knot because we had 16 cast members on yeah. stage. We had 16 vocal mics on one stage and to get them not to cross. To cross yeah. I mean, we had three days of just that. We didn't sing. That's we said, okay, real. you go from point A to point B. You hand your mic off with your left hand, take this other mic with your right hand, put it behind your back under your leg and hand it to the piano player and he passes it over. You know, it was it was amazing. Um, yeah, that's, that's bizarre. You never... You don't think about that, you know. You just think, well, wireless mics, but you wouldn't think of that organization you would need with that many vocalists to, because that would be a mess. 
I mean, that, it was. Yeah, it I've seen shows that try to do that, even with four singers, and it ends up being a mess. But yeah, it would have had been a lot of work. Well, these guys knew their stuff, and the directors, uh, Joe Jurls and Matt Davenport, and uh, Matt still runs a production company, Matt Davenport Productions. And um, now they all, you know, now he told me, he said, it's so much greater. Now we all have wireless, you know, technology. But yeah. he said, because those three days were really, they were wasted days from a rehearsal standpoint because you had to do it because yeah. you didn't want to end up with a giant knot at the end. But, um, you know, Opryland called themselves not a theme park, but a show park. Yeah. Because that's what they were built on. Yeah. And it was, we had a rock and roll show. We had a Broadway show. We had a sort of cowboy western show uh that had a little storyline to it i was in it for a while called way out west it had easter in song and story over at the grand Ole opry house i was a part of that i was saint peter believe it or not um and it had christmas shows and you know they were open at christmas too and i remember how cold it got and uh we'd do shows there it was a it was a what i called college for singers musicians it gave a lot of musicians who came to Nashville who otherwise couldn't get their foot in the door yeah. a place to work mm-hmm. while they got, you know, you, you got you to gotta pay your dues in Nashville. You got to play the honky-tonks and the bars f- for tips because they don't pay. Yeah. And, you know, as a singer, you go there and you find out, you know what, you're at the back of the line because there's like 10,000 singers who are just as good, if not better than you, and they're in front of the line. They know all these other people. They've made the connections. And now you got to... So I, I labored there for five years, you know, and uh, doing my thing. So uh, in that show, what were you doing? Uh, what type of music were you doing? Obviously country, but... Country Music yeah. USA is a history of country music. So, I, you know, I came on... I think the first guy I did was Bill Monroe uh, from Bluegrass. And then, of course... Um, at times I've done, you know, over five years, you end up doing everybody. But yeah. I did Bill Monroe, I did Roy Acuff, I did Jimmy Rogers, I did Hank Williams, I did Jim Reeves. And then I did, uh, you know, one of the guys from Alabama, the Oak Ridge Boys, um, tons of, you know, I've done, I've done them all. I've done Vince Gill and a bunch of other guys that I, I can't even remember. Um, heck, and then I went and did a, a, my favorite show, which was called I Hear America Singing, which is a history of music in America, yeah. from the United States from, from the 1920s up till present day. And I got to do Archie Bunker. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I got to do, um, uh, I got to do everybody. I, I did um, Bruce Springsteen in that show. Wow, oh. that was great. Yeah. So, yeah, it, you ran the musical gamut, and that's where I sort of learned what little I know how to read music now. That's where I learned to play guitar. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, you're around people who really want to be in the music business, who really know their stuff when they get there, and I didn't know my stuff when I got there. I was some kid who was doing, you know, local theater and doing Pfizer but of course, after the first year at Opryland, just doing weekends only, they offered me a yearly contract, and and uh, I had to make a big decision to stay with Pfizer or to pursue the dream, and I pursued. That probably was a tough decision. It was a very tough decision yeah. because my father was an engineer, and he's a great man and smart, and his number one priority was getting a solid, steady job to take care of your family. Yeah. At the time, I was single. I didn't have a family, and I said, "Well, I'm going to step out here and do this and see what happens." And you know, 
after five years and nothing really was happening except you just you got rehired and you had a job every year yeah. and the pay wasn't great it wasn't nearly as good as it was at Pfizer yeah uh, that was the real decision uh, at the end of 1994 I had a massive decision to make because you know you were kind of just running in place mm-hmm. And everyone was cutting demos and pitching them, and you know, and, you know, one out of every, you know, what thousand or two thousand maybe gets a shot at even talking about a record deal, much yeah. less getting it. So you know, it was sort of running in place, and I was picked to do a show called uh, um, "I Hear America Singing." I was cast, and the director's name was Ted Swindley. And Ted Swindley wrote the play "Always Patsy Cline," yeah. which has played everywhere, and. He and I became fast friends, and I told him, you know, I've, I've been here for almost five years, and I, I really think I should get back in and try to get back with Pfizer and get my job back and see what I can do. And he said, well, didn't you sing Hank Williams in Country Music USA a couple years ago? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, the Ryman has asked me to write a show about the life of Hank Williams, similar to the Always Patsy Cline. They want to put it in there. He said, why don't you stick around for another season and, and be in I Hear America Singing, let me direct you, and let me work on this play, and you can do the reading for it, and we'll see, just see what happens, because I think something really good could could come of this. Yeah. And it did. They didn't, they didn't use the play he wrote. They went and bought one that had already been written by Randy Myler and Mark Harlick called Lost Highway. Yeah. And, but they, they let uh, Ted direct it, so Ted cast me without any audition. So that was the easiest gig I ever got, and you know, the rest is history, as they say. You know, one thing led to another, and here I am. So, uh, yeah, the heater's going on in the room here. <laughs> I know. Whenever you do a remote podcast, that's always a thing, huh? The air conditioner's running or the heater's running. Uh, it just sounds like noise in the background. That's right. White noise. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's pretty neat. I mean, here you go from a guy who never sang uh when he was growing up didn't have a band um didn't you know play the bars and do all that stuff and you you jump into playing at Opryland um and doing that for a bunch of years and all of a sudden the Hank thing comes along um and Ted there would it, I mean that's pretty neat that he probably was writing that uh show and had you know had you probably didn't want to have to say because he didn't know for sure that that would be your part but probably was writing that knowing that you'd be the guy um even though they didn't go with that particular show um it's pretty neat that you just kind of got that part and that was a big part well it was really cool Uh, it was really cool that he thought that much of me that that he you know went out on a limb you know because they could have said wow that that guy is a terrible hank because i'm sure in the beginning i'm sure i've gotten a ton better since then but your first shot at anything i remember my first audition at opryland i was already been cast in the show and then all the men got to audition for all the men parts every guy you got a shot at it yeah and hank williams thing came up and they wanted to do lovesick blues none of us could yodel oh yeah I couldn't yodel then. I'd never tried. You know, I never yeah. sang for one thing, and then I here I am trying to yodel. And so, you know, they tried. They wanted me to do the part because I looked like him. Yeah. 
and they wanted me to do the part and so they changed the song to your cheating heart where he doesn't yodel and i did that for a year and my director matt davenport i remember took me aside and joe Jurls as well and said learn to yodel yeah. for next year learn to yodel and i did and the next year they put lovesick blues in and uh, that helped immensely because they were all very helpful at opryland they yeah. were all they were very much in teacher mode and I was in student mode again, you know, yeah. and you just, you, you try to soak it up. Yeah. You know, I, the big decision at age 22 and 23 is to grow up, Yeah, is to get serious. Uh, you can play along like you're still in college or you're still in high school and, you know, try to do talent shows to pick up chicks, you know, and that kind of stuff. But that, I remember there was a point there amidst Opryland where you're among other people your age where there's it's a party atmosphere sometimes where you have to say I have to take this seriously yeah I have something has to happen here or I need I need to go back to the the real world job you know and uh, they were very helpful and and why I say it's a college for singers you had teachers and you know in, in every facet of life you've got a chance but you have to you have to take the reins in hand, you know, and do it yourself. And you have to pay attention and you have to be willing to learn. So how, going back to yodeling, how did you, uh, how'd you learn how to do that? I listened to Hank do it. I yeah, listened to Hank do it practice. and just tried. It's, it's, it's really, I had to learn what a head voice was, you yeah. know, it, you know, you don't have a music background. All these terms that now are so, you know, yeah they're so common to us like head voice well that's that's like going you know flipping way up you usually sing from down deep into your diaphragm you just flip it all up into your head and your nasal cavity and it's a much lighter sound but there's a real flip and that's called you know and i had to learn to do that flip in order to yodel and to some people it comes naturally but to me i had to work on it now it comes naturally because people ask me you know wow that I have to throw the Hank voice all on my vocal cords in order to make it sound like Hank because that's the way he sang. He yeah. sang just all throat and face and nasal cavity. Um, but to listen to him talk, he had a very deep, resonant, baritone voice. But when he sang, it was very shrill and very, it was, it was in your face. And um, it was perfect for his music. But for me to do that, you know, I would, I would do a show lost highway wherein you know i had what 50 percent of the acting and i had 90 percent of the singing yeah uh, and then i had to play guitar in it as well which you know i was still a fledgling guitar player thank goodness it was hank williams music you know the one four five formula um but i would be just vocally wasted i, I would be talking like this after every show oh, yeah. you know your voice is just shot yeah Eventually, your muscles catch up if you do it enough. And now people will say, how do you stand up doing that one-man show? And you talk and you sing and you play with no accompaniment and, and no hesitation for two hours. And I said, well, you do it for 22 years. You, you're, either, you're either going to fall on your face dead or you're going to get stronger. And, you know, I got stronger. Yeah. So going back to the Ryman, you get, the, you get that part. Um, how long do you work as I know it ran a long time what about pre-production how did it was it a long time getting that together or is it did it start pretty quickly well the thing was is that 
you know, we had a complete script in front of us yeah. right then. I I was told six months before we started, the show started in May, and I was told, I was actually told in December uh, of 1995 that I had the gig, but to keep it to myself because yeah. they wanted to do a big January, after the holidays, they wanted to do a big press conference and things. And as soon as that pref- press conference was done, um, I took it upon myself to go down to the Country Music Hall of Fame and talk to them and tell them what I was doing. And they had seen the press conference, so they opened up the archives and, and Harold Bradley, uh, you know, Owen Bradley's son, um, and, and Jerry Bradley as well, they all gave me pointers and they said, you need to go listen to these. These are in the archives. Nobody's ever heard these songs, which were demos of Hank, and just Hank and his guitar. These were demos he would send to Fred Rose Fred Rose would take the song and sort of mold it and say, we need to do this, and let's key change here instead of there. And Your Cheatin' Heart sounds nothing like the completed version, his original Your Cheatin' Heart. If you could listen to the demo of Your Cheatin' Heart that Hank sang. Yeah. You know, it's amazing things like that. I went to, I went to Montgomery. I went to uh, Georgiana, Alabama, his uh, boyhood home museum there. I talked with cousins, I talked with friends, um, I talked with family members, trying to get to know Hank as a human so I could play him as an actor. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the funniest story is the day after the press conference, I got a phone call. Now I'm living in a one bedroom apartment in Nashville, Tennessee, and you know, this is before cell phones. I had a pager. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was big time back then. I had a pager. Well, my my home phone rang and I answered it and she said, "Is this Mr. Jason Petty?" And I said, "Yes, it is." And she said, "Well, this is Kitty Wells." And now my first thing I did was eye roll and I thought it was a friend of mine Brenda calling and messing with me. And so I said, "That's very funny, Brenda. Thank you very much for calling and I'll be right over sure. No problem." Click and I hung up and kept watching TV or whatever I was doing. And she called right back, and she goes, "I'm, I'm, I know you think this is a joke, but it's really not. This is Kitty Wells. She's the queen of country music. If you don't know who Kitty Wells is, and it, it sort of hit me that I'm, I believed her. Yeah, she's Kitty Wells. We want you to come sing with me and my husband Johnny and our son Jack, and we, or, um, um, we're doing this show at our church, and 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 and, and, and I, I don't know how I spoke." I don't know how I spoke, but I told her yes, and I, you know, she said just do a few Hank songs, and I, you know, I'd been practicing them already and playing to the records, and I went and I got to meet Kitty Wells, and she was friends with uh, Hank and his wife Audrey. Mm-hmm. Her and her husband Johnny were were friends with him, and she opened up about their marital woes between Hank and Audrey, and what kind of person Hank was, what kind of person Audrey was. Um, I want to backtrack real quick because while I was at Opryland, I got my first big chance to do the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah. And I was introduced on the Opry by Roy Acuff, who, was the, who is the king of country music. And I sang Love Sick Blues, and I was really nervous, and my hand was shaking. And Mr. Roy saw it, and he came up and he held my hand for the whole rest of the performance. And I calmed right down, boy. Yeah. And I was like, I looked up at the sky and I'm standing on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry. And I said, God, you can take me now. I've done it all. I mean, yeah. 
but getting to meet those people and Mr. Roy, uh, he talked to me about Hank and, you know, you know, he said he was a very troubled man, but, you know, he said he had a, he had a good heart. He had a great voice. He was a real talent. And he said something to me. He said, you know, Hank wasn't meant to be on this earth that long. He was meant to, to burn really bright, but really short. Yeah. That's the way the Lord intended it. And I really have taken that to heart when people say, wow, if Hank had only lived 20 or 30 more years. And I said, well, maybe it had done like a lot of the other stars. You know, the, the country music business is very fickle. Yeah. If you get five years out of the country music business, that's, that's the cream of the crop there. Because suddenly they forget about you and they move on to something else. And it doesn't matter. You stick around. They, they forgot about George Jones. They forgot about Merle Haggard. You know, the mm. guys still toured and did their thing. But, you know, major play radio just forgot them after a little while. Yeah. Uh, that's a neat call that you got from Kitty Wells. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was, <laughs> it was, it, it was funny, you know, and I would get phone calls immediately after that from from well i go to do the show with kitty and sitting on the front row is don helms and his wife hazel and jerry rivers and don helms was a steel guitar player and jerry rivers was his fiddle hank's fiddle player hank williams band members is what i'm talking about and they're sitting there and i recognize them from pictures so not only am i nervous enough being on stage with you know kitty and jack and then there's Don, there's the Drifting Cowboys, that's the name of Hank's band. There's two of them sitting right there. And then a couple of days later, you know, my phone rings and it's Hillis Buttram. And he said, uh, let's go to dinner and let's talk about Hank. And I was like, okay. And Jerry invited me over to his house and me and him and Don sat there and their wives were there and they talked about Hank and Audrey and played some old recordings that no one had ever heard before. And then Don picks up the phone and says, hey, can you bring some of Hank's stuff over here? Yeah, bring his guitar and his hat and one of his suits. You know, just some, I got Jason Petty over here. He's getting ready to do the Lost Highway at the Ryman. Yeah, bring her too. And he hung up. And 30 minutes later, Marty Stewart and Connie Smith came over. Uh You know, and there I am sitting there going, what has happened to this little kid from Tennessee, you know, whose grandparents owned a farm and (laughs) working at Pfizer. (laughs) I was working at Pfizer about, well, you know, five years ago and having fun and doing all kinds of stuff. Now I'm having a blast and learning and, you know, things happen for a reason. I'm a big believer in, in fate and destiny and following the right path. And, um, it just seemed like all the signs were pointing, go this way, Yeah, go this way. I'll give you a little nudge, but you got to decide to do it yourself. And uh, it, it has worked out so far. Going back to Kitty Wells real quick, it was years ago. Uh, we were doing a, a TV show with the with the my family, the Walters family, and Kitty Wells was our our special guest on the show. So obviously, we were doing a bunch of pre recording for the TV show. And we needed to do a pre-record for for Kitty Wells, and she was up uh, in the area doing some shows. So uh, Brian uh, was booking her at, uh, uh, and arranged for her to come over to the, the studio I was working at, and recorded. Uh, we sat in the studio, and I recorded "Honky Tonk Angels," and I can I'll never forget that. I can I can put myself back there right now. No headphones. No, nothing. They just sat around in the semicircle. I mic'd everything up, 
and they kicked it off and they've played it a million times. But, you know, I sat there and I still think how many people had recorded her singing that song? Mm-hmm. Not many. And it, 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 I still hold that as a real, you know, special moment that, you know, I just kind of hold to myself because even the guys at the studio, they didn't, I don't think they understood what a big deal that was. Um, and they just, they weren't hanging around. They were out front and you know, they we, I did my thing and, and yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. I'm thinking, God, that was, it's history. And it just, and they laid it down and it just felt, man, it just, the tones and the way they, they sang the way they played using her band. And it just it was unlike any other recording I've ever done in my life. And it just turned things up and it sounded just like the original. And it was pretty cool. I, I'd give anything to go back. I wish there was some type of recording of that, or I know the masters will be somewhere. I don't even have that. It will be on the TV show. Um, I could pull it off of that, but, um, well, it's, it's, it's history. It's, yeah. you know, it's that, that song changed the world for women in country music. That's why she's called the queen of country music. She opened yeah. that door. I mean, if it weren't for her and, you know, the Carter family with Sarah and Mother Maybell and a lady by the name of Patsy Montana, you know, with I Want to Be a Cowboy Sweetheart, they had to kick down. And I mean, they really had to wrestle the doors away from the men and then kick them in and then continue to, to show that women could be a powerful force in yeah. the country music industry because it was I mean, it was songs written by men for men and sang by men and recorded by men and the producers and the record executives and um, radio people they were all men it was a male dominated society industry back then and um, even that so- the subject matter of that song it's an answer song to a Hank Thompson song the wild side of life yeah. where he blames you know, the honky-tonks for, you know, the woman for deciding to be a honky-tonk angel or whatever, you know, and he didn't know God made honky-tonk angels. And she came back and said, God didn't make honky-tonk angels. It's usually a man that drives us to go there. And I thought that was such a great, you know, take that, you yeah. bum, you know. And, I mean, Hank Thompson's a great guy, and he didn't he didn't take any offense to it. I mean, it's, it's, it's for him it was a song. But yeah. Pat's, uh, Kitty didn't even want to, uh, she didn't want to record it. You know, she was a studio singer at the time, and she was she was about to re- retire out of the music industry altogether, and she was still singing demos. And she went and sang that demo, and they said, "Home, oh, you gotta, you gotta stick with this." And she did, thankfully for all of us. It's crazy. Yeah, and that's another thing that 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 these people that I got to meet, like Don Helms and Jerry Rivers and all these folks, it's important to remember the history of country music because it was a music. It, it was a music culture. Yeah. It was a music of the people. It was common man and woman's music. It was the tale of their life, uh, their struggles, the hardships, the fun times, the sad times, loss of life, death, you know, all this. It was everything. And they, they sang about these things, and it meant something. And I say it in my show. My dad used to say, this is the music that has meat on its bones. Well, it is for a certain culture, for a certain yeah. part. Of, you know, there's some people who can't relate to it at all. And I get that. I get that. I can't relate to other. There are different types of music I don't relate to at all. But I get it that it's important to them. And this one is very important to a, to a lot of people. And, and that helped being around it. I think in, in being at the Ryman was such a historic place and being surrounded by all these 
you know, history-making stars of the early days of country music and having them come to you and telling you, thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing this. It, you don't know what that means to a young guy. You know, I was still yeah. just a kid. I was in my late 20s, and I'm, you know, you're still a kid in your late 20s, believe it or not, and you're, you're going, well, what am I doing that's so good? What am I doing that's so great? And then finally, as you get older, you get it. You get it. You're making people happy. You're bringing back great memories of a simpler time for them. And it's something very important to them. And you don't need to take it for granted. You know, it's easy to get caught up in, gosh, I've been on tour for six months and I'm tired. And can we cut like four songs out of the show tonight? They won't tell the difference. Well, no, but you'll know the difference. Yeah. And one of these days it's going to come and kick you in the butt. So. So going back to uh, doing the show at the Ryman, uh, what was that first show like? Scary. Yeah. I don't remember much. I remember being scared. I remember not having any saliva in my mouth. You know, it's just like cotton. Yeah. You, I, dr- I could drink six bottles of water before the show, and then you get 10 minutes in, and you have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so yeah. you go, like, crap, I got another hour to go before I can get a break because I was on stage the entire time. So I remember it being filled with all the record industry people, all the music songwriter people, and all the big country Opry artist people. Um, that's about all. And my parents, <laughs> you know, my parents were there. My my grandmother was there. Um, you know, everybody that had influenced me as a kid. Yeah. And it was just, you know, it was an amazing night. But my, you're so scared. You're apparently your memory doesn't, it doesn't grasp and hold. Yeah, it goes. Oh my God, we got through that. Whew, all right, next. You know. Yeah, it's like a filter when you're doing. You're in that position. It just all your energy goes to getting through the show. There's almost like certain parts of your brain shut off to, to kind of give more energy to, you know, keeping focused and exactly. Doing it's a lot like, you know, like we were talking about being on the road the other day. Some days, you know, for that two hours, life is grand. I'm on stage and people are loving it and you're singing and you're playing. It's the 22 hours where you have to jump on the plane and go through security and take your shoes and your belt and all this stuff off and then grab your suitcase and make sure your guitar doesn't get broken in flight and then sit there for two hours while the flight is delayed or maybe, you know, and it's it's the grind of loading in and setting up and you put your head down and you do it. You put your head down and you do it. And for that opening night at the Ryman, we had rehearsed enough that I said, if I don't know it by now, I'll never know it. Yeah. So put your head down, get in that place. Cause as an actor, you have to become that person. So you, 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 you get inside that person's head and you've got this whole aura filter around you and you shut out the outside world and that's that fifth wall they talk about or whatever it is between you and the audience you are suddenly in a very tiny space in a different time and you're a different person so you have to think differently and speak differently and i think once you snap out of that then you can take in all of the oh man this was a great night and it was wonderful and all these stars are here and i remember more about the after party than I do about the onstage part of it. Yeah, because you're relaxing and yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. So how long? Uh, how long did you do that show for? Two. I did that particular version of the show. 
because we had to sanitize that version for the Ryman. Um, because, you know, Hank's life wasn't, you know, all fairies and butterflies. And, yeah. you know, it, it, it was some hard, dark things, you know, sex and danger and cursing and drinking. You know, it's all that was there. You yeah. know, just like anybody else's life. You know, you got that good with the bad. So we had to sanitize it a little bit for the Ryman. And then um, we did that for two years at the Ryman. How many shows do you know? Do you know? Wow, shows? we did I think four shows every weekend for six months. So you know, I don't know what that comes out to. Yeah. And and then you know you take the winter off and you come back the next May. And it was during uh, that interim period that uh, I did my first road uh, tour of it, and we did I think six weeks in Edmonton, Alberta, um, up here, and that was my first introduction to Canadian audiences. And lo and behold, 22 years later, a guy shows up two nights ago at the show and goes, I saw you in Edmonton. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, it was pretty cool. Yeah. You know, and then a lady shows up last night that had seen me at the Ryman. And and, and she's coming back to see the next two shows that we're doing here. Um, and so, you know, it's just amazing um, that we did we did that Ted Swinley Lost Highway version uh, for two years at the Ryman Auditorium. And then from there... We went on a, uh, a a couple of national tours, and that took up. I went to Norway, uh, and that's I started doing. You know, people will start asking want to book you, but just do the music. They don't they don't want you to do the play. Yeah, and so that's when I started getting in my head. You know, you probably need to come up with a show that's just music based. Yeah, you know, and not a play, not an actor thing. So that's when I started formulating putting a band together and going out and doing some dates on my own and that's when the first inkling of that happened did you uh did you feel at all putting that show together was in conflict with what you were doing and maybe people wouldn't like that or uh it was so separate it didn't really matter you know what i mean there's something going through your mind because i know you if you're doing a show and you're working on it and then you're pulling away to do your own version of something that you're doing um you're you have i guess you have that risk of you know ticking somebody off right um, you do i mean you do but i was uh friends enough i had made friends enough now with merle kilgore who was hank williams jr manager and sort of the head of that part of the estate and i, I have become friends with jet williams who's uh hank's daughter yeah and um, those those they were they were very encouraging. Yeah, go out and do it because every time you go do it, you know, we, we, the interest in Hank Williams soars, you know, and we sell albums. And the Hank Williams estate still makes millions of dollars every year because Hank's music is timeless. It's a little different than everybody. He's sort of the Elvis of country music, you know. Yeah, it, 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 you got a pretty steady line of what his record sales are going to be next year, and they're not going to decline or go up that much. They're pretty. Gonna, they're going to stay fairly steady. You can count on that money, is what I'm saying from the estate's point of view. So they're very encouraging of keeping his name out there, keeping his legend alive, keeping his music alive. But in the end, as an actor, even when we were rehearsing the show. We, we had the motto of, it's, it's about the music, stupid. You know, that yeah. was our motto, is if we mess everything else up, let's get the music right. Yeah. Because that, you boil it down to its base alloy, and it's, it's Hank Williams' lyrics and his style and the music surrounding it that made it so great. The story, you know, 
is what it is. And you try to do that to the best of your ability uh, based upon your knowledge. And, you know, you can't vary from the script. So uh, you don't have any control over that content. You just have control over how you deliver it. And uh, when I went out on my own, you know, I knew I had stacks of stories written from these people that would, everyone wanted to tell me their Hank Williams story. Everyone. Every waitress, every record executive, every songwriter who got interested in music because they heard a Hank Williams song. Yeah. I mean, Don Helms had his favorite Hank stories, um, but those the people that knew him best wanted me to keep him human, keep him human. He's such a legend now, and everyone tries to make Hank the greatest this, and when Hank drank, he drank more than you know, the population of New Zealand combined. You know, no, he didn't. Yeah. He didn't drink that much. It just, you know, his, it was everything else. Yeah. You know, he combined it with pills and at the end. And it was just, you know, it was just one of those situations where he, everybody wanted me to make sure I got it right and made Hank a human being. And let's just honor him for his music. And that's what we do. So during the show at the Ryman, obviously you must have had a lot of country music folk singers uh, come out to see the show. Uh, I know you mentioned... Uh, in your show now that you have people like Alan Jackson, George Jones, um, Porter Wagner. Yeah. What was that like? Little Jimmy Dickens. I mean, little Jimmy Dickens and Carl Smith came together. And if you know anything about Carl Smith, he retired years and years and years ago and people have tried to coax him out of it. He never would go for it. He didn't want to be in the limelight and he wanted to be a rancher, which is exactly what he was. But him and Jimmy Dickens stayed good buddies and them and their wives came back and, they're sitting out, leaning against the Ryman backstage entrance, smoking cigarettes, and took me over to Tootsie's after it was over, and we had a beer together, and we talked about Hank. I mean, it was it was incredible. I got to perform for them. Yeah. They got to go back in time, and then we go across and have a beer at Tootsie's Orchid Lounge, and, and we have a beer and talk about old Hank, and it's, you know, everybody, you know, every night I ended up at Tootsie's after the show with somebody yeah. who wanted, you know, whether they were just a fan you know, they wanted to go over there, but uh, it was amazing. You know, and you got everybody's Hank story. You know, George Jones's Hank story of how, you know, how he cried himself to sleep in his bunk, being a U.S. Marine, and he was in basic training, and he heard the news Hank had died, and he cried himself to sleep in his bunk, trying to hide it because he's supposed to be a Marine. You can't cry. Yeah. And come to find out at reunions 25 years later that everybody was crying, but no one told each other. You know. Yeah. It's great moments like that that really make it worth it, you know. Yeah, you probably have to look back at that in those times uh, doing the show then and getting all that information and getting all those people coming and telling you the stories. Uh, I'm sure as the show was going on, you were able to, you know, every story, every time you meet somebody would give you something that would just give you that much more energy and much more fuel to, to kind of get ready inside uh, who Hank was and be able to deliver the, the goods. Um, well, my dad instilled in me, he said, if you think you need to remember something, write it down. Yeah. Always write it down. He goes, I don't care where you write it down, just write it down, put it in your pocket. If it's something important, like if it's a, you know, if it's a witty line or a joke or something, if you, you know, write it down, it'll make that much more difference because dad was, you know, he was that engineer cut and dried, very anal retentive, write everything down and the spaces had to be correct, you know. But if he taught me anything, it was, hey, this may be important later on. 
like these stories these people are telling me, you know, I could forget them, you know, and I'm sure I have forgotten, you know, that first couple of months, I didn't write them down. Yeah. And that's the first couple of months is when I met most of those people. Yeah. So I had to draw a memory to write a bunch of the first stories. But, um, you know, after that, I wrote everything down. And, you know, it's, it's every memory I had, uh, Kitty Wells talking about, you know, them going to dinner with Hank and Audrey and the fights they would get into and things like that. And I wrote everything down that I could. And, uh, you know, I still write stuff down to this very day if I think I need to remember it. Have you ever thought about writing a book? Well, someone said that, but I said, no, I write shows. I mean, when yeah. I get when I get old and, you know, I might write, you know, my memories as Hank Williams. <laughs> yeah. You know, my memories It'd be as an interesting Hank. book there in a twist in a way where it probably would. Uh, I don't know, you know, how well it would sell, but you know, that wouldn't be the point of writing it. The point of writing it would be, hey, I'm not gonna be here forever, so here's these stories that I heard. Pass them on. Yeah, because you probably know more stories in a whole, you know, package than almost anybody. You know, everyone will have their story and they might have heard a couple. But the amount of stories that you would have heard combined uh, is probably more than almost anybody. I guess you know I've re- I've never really sat and thought about it in that you know I've heard people say write a book and my 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 knee jerk reaction is well I write shows yeah because I love to perform and I'm still in good performing age and shape so I want to keep doing this for years to come you know and I and as you know I've written six or seven other shows that we've got up on the website that people can see and they're all they all contain the history of the story behind the song or the songwriter or the artist it's the story that's what from a very early age i was a huge history buff that interests me more than someone standing on stage and singing song after song after song after song because i can buy a record you know or a cd now and and uh download it if i just want to hear the music but if I want to know the story behind it, how do I get Chris Christopherson? You know, and he does that now. Yeah. Chris Christopherson now um, will tell you why he wrote uh, Why Me, Lord. You know, and it's an amazing story. Yeah, and it gives you a whole new perspective of that song. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Larry Gatlin writing, um, what is the name of the song? It's kind of like Why Me, Lord. Help Me? Yes. Help Me. Yeah. Um, you know, and Larry goes. Larry does one man shows now, and he's he's a great guy. He he's been through the ringer. You know, he had his drinking and drug days, and he recovered from it. He's had vocal surgery. He's you know he's he's run the gamut. A, a massive comeback in the late '80s and early '90s with his brothers. Yeah. You know, and now he's out there doing a one man show, and you know, telling some of the stories behind the songs, and that's what interests me. And so all my shows are like that so maybe one day i will write a book um you know this is a this is a an appeal to all publishers listening to the podcast exactly (laughs) give me a call give me a call and don't say you're kitty wells (laughs) yeah that won't work anymore it won't so you you finished up in uh at the ryman in nashville uh you went uh off broadway to new york as well did you not yeah, we did a couple of national tours, and then um, I got into one of those legend tribute shows because, A, for one, once the 
Hank stuff ended, the the uh, Lost Highway ended, there was nobody sitting right there ready to take it up again. Yeah. And I had not yet gotten my stuff you know, in order to go out and, and do shows on my own. Luckily, as fate would have it, um, my da- well, and I don't say luckily for my my dad was having to have heart surgery, so I had to, I came back to Nashville, and was staying with, there with him, and there was a new show opening up at the Ernest Tubb record shop called Country Superstars, and it was it was a an impersonator show, yeah, and they wanted an old, a couple of old country acts, so they got a Hank and a Patsy, Hank Williams and a Patsy Cline, and they picked me for Hank. Then we were there. Dad recovered, uh, and then the show went out to Nevada, and we played out there for like six more months. And I got to tell you, you know, I had a real problem with doing an impersonator show because I don't want to be known as an impersonator. Yeah. Um, because I'm not. No. Um, no, it's not what I do. But you should have seen the money they were offering me to go do an impersonator show when I didn't have any other options. Yeah. So I went and I took the money, you know, like Hank Jr. said, he goes, I'll take your money, I'll make you a movie, but buddy, I was born to boogie. You know, that's <laughs> you know, I was born to act. I was born to do my own shows. I was born to to tell the story. Um, but, you know, if somebody in Las Vegas calls and says, Hey, we're gonna pay you this big giant amount of money, we're gonna pay for your meals and your room and board and your flight here and back, you go is this Kitty Wells again? <laughs> Who is this? Is this a joke? Of course I took it. And then after that, while I was doing, while I was in Nevada, I got a phone call from Randy Myler, the writer of Lost Highway. Mm-hmm. And he had seen the show at the Ryman, and, and he didn't like the version they had done because they had to clean it up. They had to take all the dark stuff out. Yeah. And, and he's a real... He's a real gritty director. Uh, he's a great director. He's a great writer. And he writes from a very humanistic standpoint. But the other thing he does is he makes it interesting. Yeah. You know, he makes it interesting. He doesn't, you know, you're not bored with soliloquies for like nine hours trying to develop the character. He can develop his characters quickly and, and very interestingly. And I loved what he had, his original script. Well, he said, listen, he goes, you do a great job with Lost Highway, but he goes, I'm, I'm kind of torn as to whether you can do the real gritty stuff, but I want to give it a shot. I want this, I, I, you, he goes, you're the best Hank I've ever seen and I've ever heard. He said, but now we have to work on your acting chops. And he's the guy that I credit with, you know, eventually we, the first place we went was the Cleveland Playhouse in Cleveland, Ohio. While we were there and he worked with me and, you know, and just constantly on things to do. You know, you don't, so many people overact. Yeah. He said, talk to the audience or, you know, or talk to the people on stage like we're talking right now. Talk like we're talking right now. Hear the inflection in your voice. You can, he goes, don't put that, there's a ringing, there's a, there's a tone you can tell when a bad actor acts. Yeah. It's always kind of like this, you know, my voice has changed and you can suddenly tell, but the actor doesn't know they're doing it. Yeah. But anybody that's watching it can go, oh, and start sinking in your seat. So he said, try to keep the same tone when you're talking on stage, you know, that you're talking to me because you're going to be mic'd. You don't have to, you know, it's not like the old Broadway days where you have to project, where you have to shout almost. 
uh, like we had to do in you know in theater, like in my hometown of Manchester. Yeah, they don't have mics. You got to shout. You got people got to be heard. Yeah. So we took it to Cleveland, the Lost Highway. It got great reviews. Uh, I loved the grittiness of it, the realness of it, even the dark, the darkness of it. Um, and while we were there, an off-Broadway producer uh, came to see the show. And he had a 175-seat off-Broadway theater called the Manhattan Ensemble Theater. But he wanted the show right then. And I was already, by this time, I was starting to get my stuff together, you know, and booking my own shows. And I had bookings. So I had bookings until uh, American Thanksgiving, which is the third third Thursday in November. And he had a limo come pick me up. I was in... Massachusetts, Springfield, Massachusetts, where I ended my tour. He picked me up after the show uh, and drove me straight to New York City. Uh, I got Thanksgiving Day off, to, you know, and then the next day we woke up and we were in rehearsal for Lost Ho- Highway off Broadway. Yeah, we only had a an initial. Actually, we only had an initial three week run. Well, after the first week. Uh, the New York Times critic came, and I remember Randy Milo, the director. <laughs> he said, "Don't get your hopes up. We're getting their worst. He, we're getting their most cynical, you know, uh, critic that they're bringing. He hates everything. So just, just don't take anything. You know, take everything with a grain of salt." Yeah. Guy loved it. Awesome. Went nuts over it. Then Rolling Stone came. Then Entertainment Weekly came. Then Time Magazine came. And then, you know, every, every New York Post, all the New York papers came out. Associated Press, everything. They loved the show. Within, I don't know, maybe a day of the New York Times review coming out, all of our shows were sold out for the three-week run. He asked if we could extend for three weeks after Christmas. We said yes. Those sold out within the next week. So what happened was after that run got finished, we took a two-week hiatus because I had another gig in Las Vegas. You know, this was stuff that was unforeseen, and I already had stuff booked. We took a two-week hiatus, and and another off-Broadway producer came in and took us to a larger theater, and we ran there for about eight more months, I believe. I can't remember exactly how long it was, but, you know, you run, and we're sold out at the beginning, and then, you know, as everybody who's going to come see it comes and sees it, um, you know, the the audiences began to fall off there in the beginning of summer, and by the end of the summer, they made the decision, you know, let's try and take it on the road. And they looked at me, and I, remember, I still remember this conversation. It's the hardest decision I've ever had to make. Randy Myler, the guy who had basically given me I, and I got lucky enough to win the Obie Award, which was Off-Broadway's top acting award. Yeah. It's the equivalent to the Tony Award. Off-Broadway just means smaller houses. I mean, it's under under 500 seats is Off-Broadway. Over 500 seats is considered a Broadway stage. Yeah. So I won the Obie. At the, you know, I was nominated in all of the other award shows where it pits Off-Broadway versus Broadway. It's just Best Actor. And I was one of the five nominees, and it was me and Antonio Banderas and uh, Harvey Feierstein. Yeah. Uh, he was doing uh, Hairspray. Wow. And, of course, him and Antonio Banderas, who was doing uh, Nine, I think it was. I think it was Nine. I don't remember. They won. And uh, me and uh, who was the guy in Rambo that played the sheriff? Brian. 
Oh, gee, I don't remember. Oh, man. Anyway, he was sitting beside me at dinner at one of these where we pitted the off-Broadway and the Broadway starts. He goes, you know you and I aren't going to win, right? I said, yeah, I kind of got that idea. He goes, this is, he goes, this thing's already been decided. He goes, it's between those big, the big dogs up there. Me and you are just the bit players. And I said, you know, I'm the bit player. I consider you a big dog because he's, you know, uh, Brian Dennehy. Oh, there you go. Brian Dennehy. What a great actor and just a good guy. He sort of like took me under his wing at these, at these dinners where I knew nobody. Yeah. And I'm a country kid from Tennessee and I'm walking into New York and in my first try at it, I'm up here where these people have labored for years and they can't get to the table. And here I am going, what am I doing here? I really felt out of place there. Yeah. So um, yeah, I was lucky. I soaked it all in. And then when the, the end of the run came and they said, uh, our producers want to do a national tour, I just said, guys, um, I, I've done all I can do with the role. I mean, I, I, I really think I've done all I can do with it. And... I need to, something inside of me said, you need to go and be the boss now. You need to go and do your own thing. You've got stories. You've got the talent. Now you've got the connections, and you've got a little music business sense behind you. Do you want to be an actor and go to, you know, 20 auditions every week and, you know, maybe get one part? And you're a Southerner. You've got a draw. You're not going to get a lot of parts in New York City. So, you know... After toying around with a, a guy who wanted to manage me for a while, and that didn't go very well, it did get me to Branson. Yeah. And that's where I put the finishing touches on my very first Hank and my Honky Tonk Heroes show in Branson, Missouri at the Mo Bandy Theater, and that was 2004. And from there, I got an agent, and I've been doing my own shows and building my repertoire and meeting good people like you and Brian. Yeah, it's um, it's a great story to to get where you are now you figure how long just you've been being able to do the hank part um because there's not probably too many people out there who get put into a part and stick with it that long and and be able to make a full career out of it and you have and it's you know partially because you do it so well um and you know it's interesting you talk about not being a, whatever you want to call it, a tribute artist or person. I don't mind being called a tribute artist. Yeah, it's an impersonator. Is yeah. the, that's you know that's sort of a dirty word because you think I think of Rich Little. I don't do any other voices. You know, <laughs> I don't do. I'm an actor who learned to sing and sound like Hank Williams. Um, it's my dad's fault that I look like him, but you know, it's it's. If I were to go in a room, you know, like I got a friend by the name of Johnny Counterfeit, an amazing impressionist. And an impressionist is is a great word instead yeah. of impersonator because he doesn't look, he looks like Johnny Counterfeit, you know, yeah. but he does an amazing Johnny Cash and he does Archie Bunker. And I sort of, I, I listened to him do Archie Bunker when I did mine at the uh, uh, Opryland theme park. But uh, yeah, that the impersonator word just kind of, the first thing you think of is Rich, I think Rich Little all the time. Yeah. Because he was like the, the world's most famous impressionist or impersonator. But uh, it's not really what I do. But, you know, you want to wave a bunch of money at me, I'll, I'll try it. I'll give it my shot. <laughs> so what was it like now after, you know, working for other people and, and being on Broadway at the Ryman and now, 
you're the boss and heading out and doing shows on your own. What what type of difference was that for you? Was it was it scary or is it something that just kind of found the place and it felt really comfortable for you? You know, it's I think the great thing was is that I got married in 2002 and so that really focused me. That helped make the decision uh, in 2003 not to continue with Lost Highway. But I have since done a production with Randy Myler of Lost Highway. We got back together and did it in 2014 in um, Annapolis, Maryland, because, you know, he, yeah, I was talking to him all the time, and I said, you know, if it ever comes up and my schedule's open, you know, I just don't want to go on an extended tour, you know, but I'll go do a sit down anywhere, you know, and, uh, um, but getting married focused me. Getting married, um, it sort of empowered me uh, that now I can't just think about me. Yeah. What's best for me? Uh, but my wife and I, we didn't have kids. Our first kid was in 2007. Uh, so she traveled with me for the first, you know, five years of me trying to get my stuff together. And we had to, we, we knew we had to shed ourselves of all these so called managers and people that wanted to push you in this direction and do that we had to sit down and go what do we do best you know what can we do what do i love to do you know i love history and i'm good at doing hank williams stuff i love the old country because i've met them all you know they've all since passed away but i've met them all i've heard their stories i have a deep love and appreciation for those people not so much for, you know, country music history, but for those people. Yeah. Because it, in the end, it's not about a building in Nashville that has a museum in it. It's about the people and why they're in that museum, you know, why and how they affected other people. And, and that's, you know, my grandmother had a great storytelling ability and um, I inherited that. Um my dad introduced me to Hank Williams. The first song I ever heard was Hey Good Looking. Yeah. He sang it to me. So it was very easy. It, it it transitioned easier than it probably should have. It's always, you know, there's always the business side of it, which is the kind of dirty part of it. You know, it's just like finding an agent and, you know, uh, trying to keep the next... You know, you don't book for now. You know this very well. You 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 got your own theater, um, but you book for two years from now. Yeah. So you you hope you get a bunch of gigs here to keep you running for a year. Then you start looking. We're at the point now where we are now booking for the fall, winter of uh, 2019, uh, pretty heavily right now, and I've you know I've booked things as far away my furthest booking right now is in May of 2020 and it's on the books. So that's a, that's a, you know, that's a year and a half from now. So I'm, we got it to that point, but in the beginning it was tough just getting the next month or twos because yeah. no one books a month or two in advance. Everyone books six or 10 months in advance or even further. Yeah. So getting going, it's it hard because it's like you say that you just can't call someone or, you know, is there something next week? Um, and I know I get calls, um, and different emails to the theater and people want to say, Hey, you know, do you have anything, uh, available for the summer? We'd like to come in. And I'm like, well, I, I've already booked the next year already. Yeah. 
I, I can't even think about this year and let alone next year give me a call in a year and i'll look at the year after that right um and you're booking into 2020 right now aren't you about to start yeah yeah i was gonna say you're 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 way ahead of the schedule for for a lot of people um and that's that's always when you know you're in a good spot is when you're booking that far out but you're you're talking about the struggle is at the beginning when you get started, I guess when you guys, you know, you're from the Walters family, you guys used to tour. Yeah. And my guess is getting that thing started was no easy bargain either. No. I mean, we started really young. Um, so it was a gradual thing. And most of our touring ended up being summertime based because we were all still in school. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a little different. Um, and I think at the time, we were out doing shows you know obviously i was young so i wasn't really part of any of the financial end of things um it was something we did and we enjoyed it and it was something we're working on but i don't think it was something we were doing to make a living you know i wasn't you know at 12 looking for my you know income to come in and you know knowing this is going to be a, a payday or not um this wasn't part of something i thought about but then eventually it turned into that. Uh, so for us, it was a little different. It was gradual. It was something that we did and, and it built and it built and it built and built. So at the beginning, we didn't really have to think, okay, this is something we have to get out and now we have to make money at this and pay the bills and make a living. Cause, uh, um, you know, my dad had a job and he was an upholsterer and he did that. We had a little mm-hmm. farm. And, um, so, you know, I, I didn't even know what, our finances were I still wouldn't even I should talk we should talk about that with the family because I'd like to know I so said what did we actually you know were we counting on this to you know to survive mm-hmm. um, I'm sure it helped uh, was part of it uh, I know at some point uh, we got so busy my dad had to decide well do I need to keep this upholstery business going because it's really didn't have time for it so that ended up you know stopping for him and uh so i know that at that point you know it was it was viable but uh i know for a position like you um you decide okay now let's do our own show you're not sitting on a year's worth of income to kind of cushion yourself and so we'll just work our way into this right um but having that year having that uh, you know i got a year and a half you know yeah a year and a half's worth of work in front of me that's good now you can hit like if a booking comes in for six months from now and i've got that date open those are great those little one-offs that come in that's the filler you know you go out and you get the big stuff and then the fillers come in and those are always beautiful and wonderful and you know stuff drops out of the sky all the time because i've been out there doing it for so long you know and people know who i am and what i do and so that's the you know we're i'm trying to branch out I'm, i'm doing a new show and it's called uh, Every Song Tells a Story. And it focuses fully on the song and the songwriter. Mm-hmm. And we're in, and I'm going to, you know, part of it's going to be country music. And of course, it's going to be Hank Williams. We're going to talk about that some. But then there's others, you know, you know, we'll do Chris Christopherson. Uh, then we'll go, um, I'm going to do um, Gordon Lightfoot, yeah. Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, because it's, it's one of those old sort of folk ballads that, actually does tell the story. I yeah. mean, it tells the wreck of the Emma Fitzgerald. Uh, Harry Chapin, Cats in the Cradle, 
you know, great songs like that. Um, that uh, and even we even do uh, "Devil Went Down to Georgia," which is yeah, it's a story song. It's a made up story. Yeah, but it's a great story, you know. And and to me, that's I love that. And so we're trying. We're we're branching out a little bit, uh, but I still want to do. You have to know in this business what you do best. And then you have to go and give it everything you got. Yeah. You can't you can't go halfway. You know, um, you can't go to, well, I'll go experiment with this and say you shouldn't. I mean, I mean, you can go experiment with stuff, but if you do, give it everything you got. Yeah. Don't go and go, well, I'll go see what happens and, and, and you know, walk in with that kind of attitude. Nothing's going to happen. Yeah. You have to exp- so know what you are, know who you are, know what you do best and then focus on getting that out there to people who can book you I mean, you know getting that getting that information in front of venues uh getting that information out to fans so they'll come see you getting booked is is the easy part getting the people in the seats yeah. is another part you know it, it's uh, hank williams has been dead you know over 60 years now i think yeah so almost 60 years um so you know, are we getting the people that saw Hank Williams? Not so much, but we're getting the sons and the daughters of the people um, that Hank Williams meant so much to. And they use this show as a remembrance and an homage to their parents or grandparents. Uh, yeah, they heard, heard it as a, kids. You hear that a lot. I can hear from people and they're talking about, um, you know, this is the song that my dad used to, or my grandpa used to sing all the time. And it means a lot to them because they just that's part of their memory, mm-hmm. and they come to the show as a remembrance to them. I mean, it's it, they end up enjoying the show and loving it, but there's something that takes them back, and, and that's you know a part of uh, a lot of these shows now that you can go see. Uh, I know when we tour this Oh, What a Night show, uh, the Frankie Valley show, a lot of those people are the same thing, those are the songs that they remember their childhood from and growing up. and those are the good times, right? That's when you're carefree and you weren't worrying as much about bills and bills yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, all that stuff. So that it's a good, it's a good spot in, in your brain to remember. Right. Um, yep. Now you had a, I know you talk about your dad a lot. You had a really good relationship with your dad, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I still do, but he's been gone for like two years and, I named my son after him. Yeah. Um, and that made him very happy. Dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2006. So I moved back home to Manchester, my hometown. Because yeah. after living in New York and Nashville and Los Angeles and Branson, uh, my wife and I decided to start a family. And we moved back uh, because Dad had been diagnosed. And usually with Parkinson's, it depends on the person's age when they get Parkinson's. Like yeah. uh, uh, Michael J. Fox still living with it after, what, 25, 30 years. Dad was about 70, 72 when he got diagnosed, and we knew for a person that age, it would eventually rob him of his ability to walk and feed himself yeah. and uh, all those other things. So, And once he became um, incapacitated to the point where he couldn't walk, he had to be bedridden all the time, eventually, you know, pneumonia. Pneumonia got him. That's oh, what yeah. got him. You just, you get in a, you're in a bed and you can't do anything about it. Yeah. So I went home and, um, you know, stayed with him as much as I could and got him a good place and people take good care of him. And, uh, yeah, I missed the heck out of him. But, you know, I missed the heck out of my grandfather. I missed the heck out of my grandmother. Um, my mom died when I was seven. 
So my family immediately got closer. Yeah. It was me and my dad's mom and my grandfather, you know, and they had a farm and I spent half my time on the farm because dad worked as an in, in engineering. And so I would go spend my summers with them and then come home. My grandmother would come with me and she'd stay three weeks at our house and then go back home for three weeks. And it was just, uh, until my dad remarried my stepmom, uh, there was a period there where the three of the four of us just got immensely close. And to me that those are the, those are those great times. Yeah. So I do these shows and as you as you know, I include all of those people in my shows. My grandmother, my grandfather, and my dad. And because they meant so much to me. And uh so being on stage not only it, it really is a labor of love because I get to take them with me everywhere I go. And yeah. not everyone is that fortunate, you know. Um I get to include my story. You get to hear a lot of my story in the Hank story. Yeah, without almost realizing it's yeah. happening. Yeah. Which is kind of neat. Which is which I hope is is the way it happens. Yeah. If somebody's gonna say, Shut up and talk about Hank. But you know, you try to you know, we have a lot of similarities. Um, you know, uh, he had a strong mother figure and I had a strong father figure. You know, it was just uh it's just one of those things I I spent my summers on farms, you know, learning yeah. farm stuff and we didn't have, you know, we weren't poor. Hank was born into abject poverty and he had to write about what he knew, but uh you know, it's it's one of we're we're all from the south. We have that same southern sensibility and that southern wit and that laid back sort of style. We don't get too worried about too much. So it it, it fits. It feels like a it feels like a I like to treat the stage like a front porch. And I like to say, hey, guys, let's all gather around and share some stories and sing some songs together. Yeah. That's, that's the way I like to make the audience feel. Yeah, it, it works really well. And uh, I enjoy hearing that. I've heard the stories, obviously, a, a bunch of times now. Right. <laughs> uh, and, but I, I still, every time I listen to it, I get a little something more from it. And I think maybe because you hear it over and over again, you you start getting a little bit more in depth into your thought about it. Um, and you know certainly an interesting life um and you know you portray it really really well i i can see you can you can slip into that role really quick now um you know i see you backstage and 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 then you you come out and bam you're right into that role um it's it's pretty well become a, a part of who you are now and uh and it it really you know comes across on stage uh, really nicely people Obviously, you, you you probably hear a lot of uh, people post show because you always go out and meet people. Mm-hmm. Um, you must hear that, but you must hear a lot of people's stories about Hank all the time. Just post show from oh yeah yeah. Well, and I and I hear the same things that you're hearing. I hear you know the first song I learned to sing was you know Hey Good Looking or I Saw the Light or Your Cheating Heart or you know one of those just timeless songs. Yeah. And so many people are amazed. You know, because you don't go to a show by yourself. So you want to drag your kids or your, you know, your spouse or your friends. And, you know, maybe they don't want to go, but they will go with you. And they go and they're more amazed at the performance than the person who liked the Hank Williams songs to start with. Yeah. They're like, oh, my God, I didn't know Hank wrote I Saw the Light. I didn't know Hank wrote You're Cheating Heart. I didn't know he wrote Jambalaya, you know, that old Cajun song. You know, I didn't know he wrote all these songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah he did. And in a short 29 years 
And yeah. it, it is pretty amazing the things that we hear. Um, you know, it's it's he he touches something that very few performers. There's very few performers. You know, Elvis is one of them. And the mystique that Elvis holds over some people amazes me. Yeah. And it's the same way to a lot lesser degree with Hank, but Hank felt more real, you mm. know, because uh, Elvis didn't write a bunch of his own songs. He wrote a couple. I think he wrote Don't Be Cruel and a couple others or something like that. Um, but or I don't know what, what all songs he's credited with writing, but he could make you feel them. Yeah. He, he, and, and he was just amazing. He was a performer ahead of his time, and but uh, he was more of an entertainer. Uh, Hank was more of a... A, a real down-to-earth human being who gave us a part of his soul. Yeah, it, it's interesting, you know, uh, doing these shows across the West here and, you know, I always like going out, checking into the audience during intermission and after the show. And you you hear over and over again, I've heard people coming in uh, to these theaters and I heard a guy the other night, yep, this is my first time here at the theater. I didn't, didn't even know it was here and it's, you know, beautiful theater downtown. It's vibrant and it's very busy. And, and the show pulls people, uh, out to come to a, a place they've never been before, never been to the theater to see any show. Right. Or, uh, I heard the other night, same thing. A guy came in and says, yep, I've never seen any show here that I wanted to see besides this one. And, uh, and the theater has been there for years. And, yeah. but that Hank is the, the, the thing that brought uh, someone out to a venue and to a theater in a small town uh, and they've probably never gone to see any other live show um, and it's amazing and, and the other night last night it was great walking out intermission and you've seen uh, there's uh, a, an older fella in front of me and and it ended up being his uh, daughter he goes come on dad well it's going to probably be another you know, I think the show will finish up around nine o'clock. Is that going to be all right? And, and it was like, you know, it just kind of made you, your heart kind of just kind of, you know, it just have it, it connected with them right away. Cause it was like, Oh, he's bringing your dad out to see the show. He's probably never been to see a show in, in ages. Um, and then another guy the other night, it was really great. He came up to me and said, we're looking forward to this show. I says, yep. I said, it's nice to have you here. Hope you have a good time. So, yep. I says my neighbor brought me. And, yeah. uh, and I said, oh, that's nice. And I looked over and, and here's this younger lady. Uh, it's this fellow's neighbor. Probably he probably has no one to take him. Right. And, uh, she knew he wanted to see this and he probably asked, would you be able to take me? And she said, yeah. And, and that was really neat. I mean, you hear these little stories that you get these old folks that are, are coming and they, they know they really want to see the story and hear the songs and. And these people are bringing them out and it's it's a great story either way it's great that the people are doing it bringing them there and it's great that these people want to see the show so it's pretty neat i i've been enjoying seeing that aspect of of uh uh taking the show out on the road it's neat well in in the thing is is they give you all this love yeah they give you all this love i mean and, and you've seen it in the shows man they really get into the show and they really love the show, and they laugh at the just dumb jokes that I tell. And, you know, the the anecdotes are funny, you know, the things that happen in Hank's life, you know, yeah. like, uh, 
Audrey telling Hank that, you know, he had a million dollars worth of talent and a 10 cent brain, you know, those kind of, those are anecdotes that come from, you know, years of me listening, but, uh, they show you, they give you love and, uh, many Pearl, I got to meet, um, uh, many Pearl years and years ago. And, um, she said one thing that the, the old solemn judge at the Opry told her when she was like 22 years old, she was making her debut on the Opry. She was so nervous. And he said, just love them, honey, and they'll love you back. Yeah. So that's what I try to do. I try to go love my audience and uh, love Hank Williams, and I love the people who knew Hank Williams, and I try to love my audience and convey that to them. And they do. They, they love you back. They really do. And it's, you know, there's this lady who, uh, who came to see us at the Ryman, and she came to last night's show, and she's already bought tickets for the the Monday night and the Tuesday night show, and she lives, you know, three hours away. Yeah, and she's got to cross, go over to the island to go see. Her. Yeah, she's got to. <laughs> it's cross. like it's not an easy, no, easy place to get gotta, to. Got to take a ferry or yeah. a plane, and uh, you know, it's amazing what people will do um, when you give them good entertainment in 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 something that's not just ear candy, you know. Yeah. Um, something that that hits them deep deep and uh it means a lot and i've always wanted to do something meaningful with my life i mean i know as a young kid do something make a difference and i think we're making a difference i think we do i think we do something very deep and very meaningful and you know people i know people in my hometown you know they whether they think anything about this or not or you know i don't know what what my neighbors think or whatever but you know i feel on you know, I'm just another guy. You know, I'm just a guy, and I'm out there trying to help people um, just have a, two hours of warmth and love and remembrance and good times. And that's exactly what we do. Yeah, and it, what makes you different too? It's 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 not that you've had a career or trying to have a career, and you decided to do a tribute to someone to get some gigs. No, you no. Know what I mean, there's a lot of those people out there. It's like, well, let's put a tribute show together and to try to get some work. Um, guess it's not working out any other way. Uh, and not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's a different thing. You're, it is a you're, different thing. You're from a, an honest place with it, and you know it's a different. You know, I've mentioned before that uh, tribute shows are difficult because they they run in so many different. Uh, levels and you know there's really good tribute shows uh there's some that like i just mentioned that just people are doing it just to try to do a gig um and it doesn't come from an honest honest place it comes from you know what you know what can i do to make money right um and it shows in 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 the performance you know it really does well thank you I, i know that that big decision was part of me and my wife um my wife's name is hope and I better get my kids' names in here too. Lorelai and James Petty. Both, you know, if they're listening to the podcast, they'll they'll be mad if I don't mention their names. But um, and my wife, talks, you talk about them all the time, all the time <laughs> in the shows. They're part of the shows as well. Yeah. Um, but you know, that decision came when my before my wife and I had kids. You know, and I remember her saying, "Do you want to chase stardom and fame?" and money or do you want to do something that 
you know you already love and gets you know and and you know she said but i'm with you either way yeah but she said you know if it were me she said i would do what i love to do and you know we'll we'll always find a way to get by you know there's two of us and you know and and um she's a she has a job since she doesn't get paid nearly enough for it she's a full-time mom yeah she's kind of that's a job that's a that's a heck of a job i wouldn't want it and she does an amazing job and she also teaches kids at the local theater she does uh, the we actors guild um she's the head of we actors guild and she has two different casts of 50 kids and no kid is ever turned away every kid gets a part in a show that auditions so if 100 people show up 100 people's going to be in the show I mean, it's, you know, these are these big Shrek junior and things yeah. like that. She puts every kid in there because that's what community theater is supposed to be. Yeah. You're supposed to be there to find your, your place. You it's know, supposed to be experience. fun and yeah. a learning experience and find out if that's what you want to do. Yeah. If you want to keep doing it, great. If you don't, well, you've tried it. You gave it a shot. Well, take a, you know, take a look at you. Um, you know, we probably when you're young, um, you were working at, Pfizer and and you probably weren't thinking this is what your life was going to be you know you didn't have these grand thoughts of being a big country music star um it just you were given an opportunity and you were able to find out hey this is you know there's just a path that you got led down and it was you know it wasn't something that you had to do some big audition and spend all your life trying to work towards it. If, you know, there was an opportunity that happened and then it, it worked out for you. Yeah. I tell people I tripped into this somehow. I, you know, if I try to go back and get into my 23 year old mind, what were my plans for the future? What, you know, I have no idea. I can't even step back into that guy. You know, you're so different at 23 yeah. than you are now at my age, 29. Uh, yeah, 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 and a half. Anyway, you know, it's, that was, you know, that was 20, 30 years ago. It was, you know, almost 30 years ago. So your, your, your mentality and kids change everything. Uh, A wife changes things to a certain degree, you know, getting married, then you got to think about us instead of me. Yeah. Then your kids come along. That, that totally you know, if you had any twinklings on the outside of, well, if someone ever called and said, I'd like you to go do this movie in L.A. and let's get you an agent and start trying to get you, you know, I might could be persuaded to da da da, you know, whatever. Um, then the kids come along. Then you start thinking about, all right, we got to pay for college. We got to do that. We had to. Do. So yeah. what do I do best? Let's focus on it and only it. But I've told my wife, and she knows this, and my kids, my dream is always to be, and that's why I I love what you do so much. You've got that theater. Um, You know, there's a place in Tennessee called Pigeon Forge, and it's it's Dollywood's there. Um, I said, if I could ever get my own theater and do sort of a history of country music, sort of like, and it would be almost like going back to old Opryland days, except it would be about a two-hour show with an intermission thing in there. And it would be, it would have the old setting from the old days, and it would bring you into every different era, and you would you would explain, 
you know, why country music had to change. You know, Patsy Cline and Jim Reeves were so popular because rock and roll came along and killed the old-timey country music. It yeah. killed it. And so suddenly Chet Atkins and Owen Bradley, the famous producers, decided to add strings and make it more popish, and suddenly country music was hip again, you know? So, I mean, and, and it's fabulous things about the ebb and flow of country music trying to always make its comeback and it always being considered the 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 music of the 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 old poor country boy well that's not always the the case and i would love to have a sit-down theater and somewhere like pigeon forge or not necessarily branson that seems too far but you know somewhere like that and and just have my kids help me kind of you know that's why every time i pass a big barn i said hey darren you need to buy that place that's that's your new theater (laughs) i just i'm just in awe of what you've been able to put together there and that's 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 what attracts me to that and i know you guys only do it what during the summer months yeah but still you know that's kind of like what pigeon forge does they they want a big christmas spectacular but i'd love to be there just for the summer months you know and just do a sit down there because i think I think what we do in the heart of the Smoky Mountains would be a, a great thing. If I have any other dream than to keep keeping doing what I'm doing now on the road, yeah. that would be it. That's the only that's the only dream you're allowed to have when you have children. To have, yeah, have a nice sit down where yeah you can come home at night or later on at night at some point, or be home during the day, or be able to take them to school in the morning and. Um, and have the and kids be, help yeah. with the theater. Yeah, and be a part of it. And be a part of the show later on as they get older. If they get interested in music, they can do it. Yeah. I don't want to ever pressure my kids to follow doing what I do. I want them to make their own way. That's my father's best. He never pressured me to become an engineer. Yeah. He never pressured me. He said, you know, always take care of first things first the other stuff will come. And that's what he meant by, you know, putting food on the table and doing this and doing that. And then, you know, other opportunities will come. And uh, I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from my grandparents' work ethic. And I think I'm using that work ethic now in a different field that maybe wasn't even geared toward this work ethic at first, you know, because this is such an opportunity-based field that putting your head down and, and going at it, well, if you don't have the talent or you don't have the connections, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, so um, it's worked out good so far, and I hope it keeps working out for years to come. Well, you certainly can tell when you do a show that when you go out there, and I've seen enough of them now, that you never phone it in. Um, it's, uh, you know, if not stays super consistent, it gets better as it goes. Um, you can tell that you know when you hit the stage, uh, you're not going to ha- go anywhere and see you, and it's going to be a lesser performance because of some reason, or you know maybe there's a smaller crowd tonight for some particular reason. You don't hold back; it's it makes you work even harder. Um, and yeah, that's you know that's a work ethic uh, trait as well. And you, you, yeah. you're there to do a job, and you deliver if there's. 5,000 people there or 500 people there. It doesn't really matter. Um, and I try to put that mindset of, you know, like you said about that old guy that got his neighbor to take him. Yeah. I think before I go on, I try to envision the people that are coming and the reasons they're here. Yeah. I I do that. I say a quick prayer and then, you know, how an actor gets in, you know, you want to be left alone for like, 
you know, the 15 minutes before that, like before Lost Highway, I don't want to be talking to somebody about, you know, what I saw on the internet today or what Donald Trump said about the, you know, or, or, or what, you know, what about the left or the right or politics or religion or anything. I want to get in my little cocoon and I want to go, you know, think, uh, I want to thank God for giving me the opportunity to do this. Uh, but I also want to think who would be coming to this show tonight, that man or that woman who's coming, who's, you know, never stepped into the theater before. Why are they coming? Are are you going to, are you going to give them the half-baked show? You better not. I don't care how you're feeling. I don't care if your stomach's upset or you got a fever. And I've done, I've only done one show where I had a fever and I was sick and I was down in Alabama. And as soon as I hit that, as soon as I hit that stage, that fever went away. And as soon as I stepped off that stage, a fever came back. But I mean, for those two hours, it, it that adrenaline got rid of it. Yeah. You know, it, it's and, like having to pee before you go on stage. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> for that, me, I've had that many times. Like, oh god. And then you just hit the stage, and then an hour later, and in the you minute walk you off, walk off, it's like, what? okay, I got to go again. I got to go. But right what happened now. to that last hour? You know, your brain. You don't shuts think about it, it. Yeah. You don't and think. That about shows it. you really how your brain can really. If you can harness as much energy or thought in your brain and as much as possible, you can make it your body do anything. Because obviously, right at that moment, you know, if you were to sit well, there, I don't know that that's totally true. Yeah. I can't make my body do everything anymore, but <laughs> something. I give it a shot. Well, anyways, uh, I'm hungry. I'm starving to death. Yeah, we should go have dinner. Uh, and uh, I really enjoyed this. This was uh, uh, a nice, now you know. Nice chat. As Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. So where can people uh, find out uh, and look and find Jason Petty on the interwebs? They would go to Jason Petty, J-A-S-O-N-P-E-T-T-Y dot com. And you can learn everything you need to know, plus stuff you could even care less about about me and my career and you'll read some of the reviews and some of the quotes from some of the people I knew like Don Helms and you can listen to clips of some of the songs on my CDs that we have and you can email me if you'd like to purchase a CD you can just email me I mean I don't I don't actually put them for purchase on the website I don't, yeah. I've never I always hated being a salesman we were talking about this the other day I hated being a salesman I hated it I felt like I was intruding that people didn't want you there I don't even put my stuff for sale on the website because I you know because a I don't think it would generate enough money to make a difference and b I don't want to be intrusive so if you want a cd you email me you know we'll 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 talk about how much it is you send me a check and I'll send you a cd that's as simple as I can get it it's the old Sears and Roebuck method Well, excellent. Uh, I had a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward. we got a couple more shows left on this tour, and uh, you're coming back uh, next year to the Walters Theater as well with a new show. And uh, Very near and dear to my heart. As a matter of fact, it's a country gospel show. Yeah. And, of course, there's gonna I Saw the Light's going to be in the show by Hank Williams. It has to be. Yeah, there's Can't, a lot of them. You know, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? There's a ton, you know, On the Wings of a Snow White Dove. There's tons of country gospel hits uh and i was i was raised in church christ my grandmother and uh then i then i was in the methodist in the choir so man i've I've got them coming from all angles from a religious standpoint so and and again in this show just like all the other shows you're gonna hear the 
stories behind the songs and why they were written. Most of them you can guess why they were written. But the great story is that I saw the light, which was his mama inspired it. But yeah. uh, you'll have to wait for that one. Excellent. All right. Uh, thanks again. And uh, make sure you uh, check out Jason Petty wherever he is. If you have a chance to go see the show, make sure you do. It's fantastic. And uh, we're going to go eat. So let's, let's end this. Thanks, Jason. Thank you so much. If the good Lord's willing and the creeks don't rise, I hope to talk to you again soon. Awesome. Awesome.